From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. This week we're sharing a recent free talk with motivational speaker Tony Robbins and filmmaker Joe Berlinger, who joined us to talk about their new Netflix documentary, Tony Robbins, I Am Not Your Guru. The film offers an intimate portrait of Robbins, focusing on his 2014 seminar in Boca Raton, Florida. The evening was moderated by our deputy director, Eugene Hernandez. Let's go now to their conversation. The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the Film Buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org NYFF. Free, uh, free talk? I thought I was getting paid. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm not getting paid. That was a joke. Tony Robbins will be with us momentarily. Before we bring him out, we wanted a chance to talk with Joe a little bit about the making of the film. And uh, before he gets here, you can tell us all the things that uh, you wouldn't want to say when he's in the room. I'm kidding. But um, I was just thinking, uh, Joe, uh, Joe has a long association with the Film Society. We've shown many of his films here at the Film Society. And I think at this point, it wouldn't really be appropriate to open a Joe Berlinger film if you and I didn't sit down for some sort of conversation or interview or something like that. It would not be a premiere if it wasn't a talk with you. So thank you for joining us today um, and spending spending this time with us. Um, I thought it would be interesting and before Tony joins us to talk about um, how you make a movie, how how you make a documentary about um, a figure like this. But I think before we talk about that, I was just thinking as I was watching this trailer, um, I've seen all of Joe's films, and um, I wonder, what what do you look for in a documentary subject, A, and how has that changed over the course of your career? Some people may know Joe from his early work, Brothers Keeper. Um, certainly, I mean, the, the Paradise Lost trilogy um, certainly brought a lot of attention to you, and... Um, but I wonder if, if the, what you look for in a subject has evolved over 20-some years, 25 years. Well, I mean, yes and no. On, on, you know, the things that always interest me are the stories that, you know, through the telling of an individual story, there's some universal theme. You know, I don't think I'm much different from many filmmakers. Um, I'm always looking for kind of giving a voice to people who don't normally get to be in the movies. Obviously, with Tony, that, that's an exception. Um, I look for stories in which you can explode stereotypes, starting as early as Brothers Keeper. You know, who would have thought that you could feel the kind of emotional, positive feelings that you start to feel for these dairy farming brothers? You know, they all slept in the same bed together, they don't change their clothes. I remember when Bruce and I shot Brothers Keeper, I mean, the, the house like stunk and we would drive home and there still would be flies in our vehicle. Uh, I mean, 
but we came to love that smell because it was a metaphor for us entering into this world and we wanted to take that audience on that same journey where you go from either kind of making fun of the guys or even repulsion to by the end of the movie you've you've accepted them as three-dimensional human beings you've exploded the stereotype of you know if you drive down that one-way country if if you had gotten lost off the highway and had driven down that road with the burnt out refrigerators and stoves and you know strewn about in the high grass and you come to this dilapidated shack and you know you have these images of deliverance north you know most people would like you know put the car in reverse and, and get out and be afraid and instead we stayed and we got to know these people came to really love them as as human beings and that's kind of the the journey that we take the audience on. Paradise Lost is also about exploding stereotypes, you know. I mean, the whole premise that these kids could be, these teenagers could be, you know, uh, Satanists because they listen to Metallica music and, you know, dress in black and, and uh, you know, read Stephen King novels. That whole idea was so ludicrous that those things were actually entered into evidence. Um, so I'm looking always to kind of explode stereotypes right up you know, to Tony Robbins, because I think a lot of people have a misperception of who he is. Um, I think a lot of people have a lot of baggage associated with self-help, you know, and, and, come, and, and I hope people come into the movie kind of the way I came into the situation. You know, I met Tony at a party in 2012, and um, we just kind of hit it off. He was a fan of the Metallica film, which is also a huge film about exploding stereotypes, by the way. You know, most rock and roll films kind of put rock stars on a pedestal and this kind of brought them off the pedestal in a very human way and humanized them. Um, but, you know, I met Tony and we struck up a conversation about um, the Metallica movie. <clears throat> and because that movie is about therapy, and I apologize if you, if you haven't seen the movies and don't know what I'm talking about, but... Um, you should see them if you haven't. <laughs> you should. Um, but, you know, he was very... He, he loved the Metallica movie because, you know, at the end of the day, that movie is, is about uh, the vicissitudes of fame and fortune and not being chained by the image. And these guys no longer wanted to live by the ethos of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and wanted to get on with their lives but still make music. And mm -hmm. they were not getting along, and so they hired a therapist. So the film is ultimately about therapy and human relationships and those kinds of issues. So we struck up, um, uh, you know, a nice conversation. And I had no idea that Tony actually did live seminars. I thought he was just like that self-help infomercial DVD guy who made an appearance on Shallow Hell, you know, <laughs> uh, in the elevator scene. And, but he was very charismatic, uh, incredibly charming. I'm, I think he sensed that I might ha have had some issues going on in my life, you know, when I met him in 2012, which I did, which we can get into in a minute or not. <laughs> um, and um, he just invited me out to this six-day seminar. And, um, you know, I am a huge, if you know from my credits, I've actually done quite a bit of work in the last 25 years, so I'm a bit of a workaholic. So for <laughs> me to take six days out of my life to do anything, uh, let alone to go to a seminar, which I had never done, to look into issues about myself, uh, is just something I, I couldn't believe I was actually doing, but something compelled me to go. I showed up in Palm Springs, California. Uh, the seminar starts. There's lots of music and dancing and pairing off with strangers and to reveal like your innermost feelings. And it just, it just, everything about it was sending the wrong message to me. So I fled 
on the first break out to the exit doors and I called my wife and I said, oh my God, this is so not for me. What do I do? And she said, give it another day. You know, so I gave it another, you know, you've taken six days. So I gave it another day and on day two there was an amazingly transformational experience. You know, he takes, you'll see it in the film, he takes you through this guided memory exercise in which he challenges you to go back to your earliest childhood memory and then challenges you to remember something about that memory uh, that you might have repressed or forgotten and I mean it's, it's a little more complicated than this but in a nutshell um, rem you know if you remember the memory before your earliest memory it releases you from often the thing that holds you back from achieving what you want to achieve in life and so I did that and I was in a room of 2,500 other people who did it with their eyes closed. I opened my eyes. I was flooded in tears. You know, and I'm a tough, cynical New Yorker, as you know. And for me to be flooded in tears at a seminar was quite unusual for me. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, it wasn't like light bulbs went off and the, angel, the skies parted and all of a sudden my life was perfect, but I felt lighter. And I, and I felt like, wow, if something can make me feel this way, I'm going to give it a shot. So, so thankfully, my wife, Lauren, who's here. Where's Lauren? Say hello, Lauren. <laughs> she encouraged me to stay because on, on day two, uh, it was, you know, like it, it opened my eyes that, you know, maybe I should stay. I stuck it out for the six days, ended up having an incredibly positive experience. And I reached out to Tony and I said, look, thank you for inviting me. Not only was it awesome. And I told him the whole story. I hated it the first day, and, I, and then I just made this switch. Um, and I said, um, you know, I'd love to make a film about you. Uh, he, he was initially reluctant. You know, I chased him for about two years to agree to make to the film. We can get into why he was reluctant mm -hmm. first. But the point is, even with Tony, and going back to your question, I'm sorry for the long answer here, um, but you know, even, even for Tony, to me, this film is about exploding the stereotype of what self-help means and what these seminars are and what people misperceive about him. Um, and I, I take, hopefully, you know, look, I think, and it's too bad people haven't actually seen the film so they would know more about what I'm talking about, but you know, I think 20% of the audience, you know, they're gonna hate it, they're gonna think it's groupthink, they're gonna like, you know, it's gonna confirm everything negative, you know, that they think about this type of activity. As Taylor Swift said, says, uh, you know, the haters are gonna hate. And, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing I can do about those guys. And about 20% of the audience, um, you know, I think are, are Tony Robbins fans and I could put up black and just put his voice up and they'll think it's the greatest film they've ever seen. How um, many people here are fans of Tony, know his work, have been okay. to one of his events okay, or so, read his books, things like so, that? Right, so, okay. so, so those, Everybody the, who's sitting close, by the way. So those people will love the film. It's the people in the middle, like me, and it's the journey, it's, it's the, who have no perception or a misperception, who may be suspicious about yeah. this type of activity. Those are the people who I want to take on the same journey that I took, which yeah. is a journey of, I would almost say repulsion to not just acceptance, but just having this incredible experience and being given some tools to, to manage you know, my sense of self-fulfillment. Well, let, let's give people a taste of the film. And in, in just a moment, Frank, up in the booth, we're gonna play that first clip, but just to set it up. Um, as, as Joe mentioned, the film is really primarily sealed within this experience of this six-day 
uh, program, and I just forgot the title. I'm sorry of the of the program. Date, uh, with, Date, Date with, with Destiny. Destiny. So it's a it's a program that Tony does um, multiple times a year. Well, he does oh, it once in the U.S. and once in Australia. Got it. Okay. So, so Joe and his crew have been invited into this um, experience for six days to bring their own cameras and um, capture it through their own eyes. Um, so just to give you a, a, a taste or a visual for sort of what, what they're doing, why don't we play the first clip and then we'll talk a little bit more about the movie and about documentary filmmaking. So that's the first two hours that made me run out the door. That was it. It gets, it gets much more interesting. <laughs> so, so I warn you, you'll, you know. What, what, um, what makes a good documentary, Joe? Oh, boy. Um, you know, different people do documentaries for, you, for, for different reasons. Okay. Um, you know, I, I want to take people into a world that they don't necessarily know, don't necessarily think they even want to go into, and take them on a journey and deposit them on the other side and in some way I hope that people, the audience has changed in some way. They've had some insight, some epiphany about their own life or uh, you know, about, about the need to help somebody else. Um, you know, it's, it's got to, I mean right from the earliest days from Brothers Keeper which now seems very commonplace but I think Brothers Keeper was a, you know, an early, and we weren't the only ones, but I think we were an early example of wanting to imbue into a nonfiction film, all the fine qualities of fiction filmmaking. That doesn't mean being untruthful, of course. You have an added responsibility of being truthful in a documentary. But the, the, the good qualities of fiction, meaning, you know, uh, dramatic, some kind of dramatic structure and a dramatic arc, and, you know, amazing characters, and, you know, just some, something that allows people to cease into a world that you don't normally get to see. You know? when, when you're making a documentary, when you are making a documentary, um, what are the parameters? What are the ground rules? Are there ground rules that you establish with a subject? Are they consistent from film to film? Are they different depending on the film? Or Did you have ground rules with Metallica? Did you have certain ground rules with, um, with Damien Eccles? Did you have ground rules with Tony? What kind of... How do you set um, up the that's parameters? A, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it depends. You know, certain films, you know, I've made some tough films about some tough subjects. Uh, you know, pollution in the Amazon with crude. Certainly, I didn't have any parameters with, with Chevron. You know, I just had to, you know, tell, the, tell, tell the story. They would have preferred you not tell the story at all. <laughs> uh, uh, probably. Uh, you, know, um, you know, Eccles was on death row. There was no, you know, he knew... I mean, I don't think he understood at the time that we were really what our role was. But, um, you know, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I need access and we need control of the film. Um, and, you know, so the only, you know, actually it took me two years to get Tony to, uh, for me to convince Tony to do the film, um, which is why when, you know, there, for the most part, the, well, the audience reaction to this film has been fabulous. We've had standing ovations, people in tears, mm -hmm. people who came in thinking, oh, I was going to hate this, but it just made me really think about my life. And, you know, but some of the more intellectual-minded, uh, not that I'm not an intellectual, maybe that's not the right word, but there's been some criticism about the, towards the, directed towards the film by some critics, like it's a promotional film, which to me just boggles my mind because I spent two years chasing him. And I think the film is incredibly objective you can think what you want about this event i i've 
done a really, I think, really good job of taking a 72-hour event and condensing it down to two hours and really giving you the feeling what it's like to, to be at that event. So, so um, give us a wig. So, so, but I, I took, so I took two, it took me two years to, you know, chase, I mean, it's not so much parameters, it's like, it's the, 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 the fighting for the winning of access. You know, I think all, you know, the films I did with Bruce Sanofsky and the films I've done myself, you know, we've taken you to places you don't normally get to see. So how do you so, make that so, case with a subject that's resistant? Because a lot of people might be resistant to having a camera follow them yeah. around, you know, throughout well, to- an experience. Well, well in, for this particular film, uh, Tony was concerned about um, several things. One, he was concerned that the presence of the documentary camera would impede in the attendees experience and people are revealing of themselves mm-hmm. in pretty emotional ways. Now he has cameras there, uh, you know, so cameras weren't totally new, but he has cameras there because it's a big room with 2,500 people and like, just like in a rock concert, you know, there are jumbotrons on the screen so that if Tony is in any corner of the room, no matter where you're sitting, you can look up and see the action. But those kind of cameras kind of hang back. They're on, you know, it's a different thing than a documentarian being in your face. So he was very concerned about that um, uh, impeding uh, the attendees' experience. His other big concern was, you know, it's a 72-hour content-rich event. And so how do you, you know, how do I reduce that to two hours and, and, and be faithful to the reality of it? Mm-hmm. You know, he was concerned that... Um, you know, like the interventions in the film that you see where these people give up, you know, stand up and, you know, really go through all of their emotional kind of stuff. Do we have a clip of something like yeah, that? Okay, good. We're going to see that. Um, you know, uh, sometimes those t- take place, you know, over a two-hour period, and I had to condense them down to, you know, seven, eight minutes, which for a documentary is a long scene, but for reality, it's, you know, he was concerned that somehow the condensation of time would trivialize or misrepresent what he does. And so he had not actually seen my other films, so I sent him my other films, and, um, and I convinced him that all documentary making is about the condensation of, of time, that there's no such thing as objective reality in any documentary. A documentary is a bunch of subjective decisions, and uh, you are always condensing time. The good documentary maker condenses time in such a way that you, you capture the emotional truthfulness of the event or the subject that you're covering, not necessarily the object, well, not even, not the, the objective, I, I wouldn't even qualify it. You're not capturing, you know, the objective reality of Tony's seminar is watching the seminar f- for 72 hours. Anything less is not the you know is, is you want to capture the emotional truthfulness. So that was a that was a big issue for him because he didn't want his process or his or the presentation of what he does with people to feel trivialized. So I convinced him that you know it's the emotional truthfulness that matters in this form in the documentary form. For example, you know I sent him Paradise Lost and the original Paradise Lost is a two and a half hour film, the first one. Uh, of which about 60 minutes is uh, the, mur- the actual murder trial. The actual murder trial in real life was six weeks long. It's, a, it's only about 60 minutes of the film, and yet nobody questioned the veracity of the film, the emotional truthfulness of the film. You know, Damien was on the stand for a week. He's on the stand in the film for 10 minutes. 
I mean, that's, that's the nature of documentary. So after I showed him a few films and talked about it, he, he, he got it, you know? And, 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 and so, so then we were just left with the, the concern about impeding. And, you know, I said, look, I'll come at my own risk if at any point, I mean, I need, I need control of the movie creatively and I don't want to be told I can't go there or can't go there. But if you want to wholesale pull the plug, if you feel I'm, in, I'm getting in the way, if, whether it's the first hour or the last hour of Date with Destiny, if you feel like I'm, in, I'm getting in the way and ruining it for your, your attendees, then throw me out and I'll, I'll give you the footage and that's, that's that. And so with that promise, an arrangement, so that was that was our arrangement. That was my access deal with him. He that's could, a he that's could, an intense he, offer he could, to he make. Could, he could cancel at any time. That, that's know? a bold offer to make well, from a filmmaker's I, perspective to be able to put everything on the line so that your subject could actually pull the plug well, on you. Yeah, you know, in this, and maybe I wouldn't have done it in other kinds of situations, but uh, well, pull the plug once once I hauled the material. Just to be clear, once I hauled the material back to New York, and he was cool with how I covered the event then then there's, then then there's no going back yeah. but but it was like he just cared about is this going to affect uh, Fair. the quality of the people who have paid money to be there um, and I was okay with that because this was, you know the short this is the shortest story I've ever covered in a film it's only a six-day shoot so it was feels it, like a breeze for you uh, I know I you know. spend <laughs> decades on stories <laughs> exactly um, and also selfishly you know what drove me to go back is I attended this thing in 2012. I found it to be incredibly compelling and transformative for me. And I wanted to see, selfishly, if I went back a second time, this time with a journalist's eye, uh, with a camera in hand and, a, and an all-access pass, mm -hmm. would I, you know, sometimes peeking inside the sausage factory, the old cliche is you don't yeah. want to know what you know, like, goes into the sausage. Um, and so... Um, you know, I was wanted to see and was concerned, you know, would I be disenchanted by, you know, being able to see how it's put together. So I had a, I had my own kind of, plus it'd be a refresh. You know, I figured the worst thing that could happen is I'd get a, another free six-day seminar and I could test some of my thoughts, and, <laughs> you know. But luckily he, didn't, luck, luckily he didn't cancel on me. So well, We're going to take a look at a second clip just to give you again a better, better sense of the movie. Uh, and as I mentioned, it opens in theaters this week. Uh, Frank, let's take a look at that, uh, that second clip from the film. Uh, Tony Robbins' I Am Not Your Guru opens in theaters this week, as I mentioned, and I'm saying that out loud for those who will be listening to this podcast. I'm also saying that. Also launching on Netflix. We can't forget about that. July, uh, July 15th debuts in, I think it's 190 countries now and wow. like 81 million subscribers. Wow. I mean, that's pretty awesome for somebody like me who's, you know, Brothers Keeper, you know, we schlepped around to theaters, uh, you know, print by print and... You know, uh, it's the world has changed. <laughs> uh, um, to think that your film can have that kind of impact so quickly is pretty cool. Well, to continue our conversation here at the Film Society, let's bring down the subject of the film, Mr. Tony Robbins. How are you all? Awesome. 
We've been talking here um, at the Film Society about uh, what makes a documentary, what makes a good documentary, how a documentary filmmaker um, navigates the sometimes challenging um, uh, landscape of a relationship with a subject, um, a relationship with time. You were talking about condensing time. Um, a uh, the idea of maintaining the emotional truth of a story. Um, Tony, you were resistant initially to the idea of someone. I wasn't resistant, it wasn't happening. <laughs> oh, so it wasn't even on the table. It was absolutely no. <laughs> no. And the reason was, I don't know what you guys have talked about so far, but um, you know, this is a very intimate environment. I see 200,000 people a year in 15 yeah. countries, but I only, and most of my events are seven to 10,000 people, or some big ones are 20,000. But this event is reserved for 2,500 people max. Yeah. They do about 20 pages of homework. I read all of that, believe it or not, so my brain is prepared. And then we use uh, cameras, but they're far back. It's just for image magnification, so you see someone's face in the subtleties in a room that size. The idea of someone being in your face in the middle of you sharing these incredible things, I just was concerned would be disruptive. And then I also was very skeptical, not about Joe, but how do you take you know, six days of 12, 14 hour days and convert that into two hours and have any integrity in the message. And, and you know, many of these interventions, I don't know if you saw the trailer, I just saw that little piece with no intervention, but many of these interventions are an hour and a half, two hours, and they get reduced, and I did 30, 35 of them, and he's showing one a day for about seven minutes, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, I thought, how the hell are you gonna do that? But that's why he has seven Emmys and you know, <laughs> nominations, two Emmys, you know, his two Peabody's and his two Academy Award nominations. This man's unbelievable in what he's done. I'm completely blown away by what he created. As Thank we were, you. As we were saying, we bring him back every time he makes a movie to talk with us about it. And, and one of the things I was thinking about as I was watching this one, um, and I honestly became more riveted as it went along because it was, it was um, eye-opening for me in so many ways. I wonder if part of the, I wonder to what extent part of the concern, the challenge, the, the hurdle of letting a documentary crew in is that, um, Tony, you're, you're on camera when you're out in front of that 2,500 person audience. We're sealed mostly within that experience of all these people going through this really amazing, intense experience. Um, but we're also backstage. Yeah. And I would imagine that if you haven't done this before, that, that to me seems like, and we see it in the, in the film, when you come off stage, you've just gone through something really intense with people who are going through something really intense in that room. Yes. And then to have a camera in your face or to have a microphone in your face, I don't know how many minutes after you've just walked off stage, yeah. that to me, as I was watching the movie, I was questioning whether that was also one of the, ch the challenges of having to be on even when you're off stage. I, I, I'm not, you know, some people, I'm a crazy mofo and I have a lot of intensity and passion. And so a lot of people are like, well, he's on. Um, he knows, this is how I am all the time. <laughs> I'm on. There is no on or off, my life is on. So huh. that really wasn't it for me. Yeah. Um, I, from my bigger concern actually, additionally, um, I know he knows is my wife. I had to get him on the phone with my wife because my wife is a very private individual. Ironically, she married me. She lived in a community up in Vancouver, Canada where there were 42 relatives within 12 miles. She never went anywhere. She had motion sickness. She was born with motion sickness. And then I live in you know three countries, you know six different places as homes, and I'm kind of train a plane or helicopter every four days. So for her, she's a very private person, and you know the world is. It's, I don't see myself as a celebrity, but I'm a public figure, 
And as a result, people want to know everything. And silly shit, you know? They want to know what you have for breakfast. They want to know what size your shoe is. And it's like, it's the weirdest shit people want to know. And my wife feels invaded by that stuff. So that was another issue. Actually, she was actually in tears uh, that day saying, we're so maxed. Because I just spent four years um, interviewing 50 of the most brilliant financial people in the world. I wrote a financial book. And then we fed 100 million people last year. There was so much going on that to add this to the list, I just said, this man, honey, is sincere, he's raw, he's real, he's the best in the world at what he does. He's approaching me again. I don't want to say no one more time. I think this is the right timing to do this. Will you please support me in doing this? And, and, and it was literally, you know, it wasn't, you know, because I, 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 you know, we would talk every couple of months and, yeah. and it took about two years. But when you said yes, it was literally, it was only about six weeks before this thing yeah, started. True. So that's it was true. actually, it was kind of a last minute decision. It was. You know? Yeah, it really was. One of the other things that I was thinking about um, as I was watching this movie is actually, from my my point of view as a viewer, how much what you part of what you do is very similar. In that, um, you're each opening up or inviting people to open up to you. You're doing it, as you mentioned, Joe, over months, years, decades. Sometimes, if you look at like Paradise Lost, um, Tony, you're doing it in a very intense way. Compressed, yeah in a moment, you know, someone is standing up and sharing with you, but you're, you're functioning in very, in very similar ways in the way that you're navigating that relationship between a subject and, 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 and someone who's trying to sort of be uh, opened up, invited into their world. And yeah. I, I, I gotta tell you something, you're very astute. You're the first person that, Joe and I have talked about this before, is like, we're very different people and yet we come from the same place, right? Yep. We have different mediums, yep. we clearly have the same height, uh, we share the <laughs> same level of optimism, <laughs> we pursue the same passions. <laughs> but what we have truly do have in common is, Joe is, my attraction to him is he's a seeker for the truth. He's not a seeker, he looks for the truth, he uncovers it, he finds it, he saves lives, you know, he shifts things. And that's what I do as well. We're both seekers of the truth that take the truth to the public as, as corny as it sounds, the truth sets you free. I mean, when you know the truth, you can deal with anything. And we live in a world full of bullshit. We live in a world where reality TV is a lie, for God's sakes. It's all a lie. So when people experience something raw and real, it's riveting. And that's what I experienced in him as a man. And that's what I experienced in his documentaries. And then that's what the appeal was. And as we spent time together and became such good friends, it was just because we really have the same mission. We just have gone about it with different mediums. Interesting, and thank you for saying that. And all, but but you added actually a whole as a filmmaker. Now you've added actually a new level of nuance to it because what you're also saying is that what he what his gift is is getting people to open up to him. Then he has the perception to go in and figure it out. And in the same way, that's what my it's job true. is. I get I, I my job is to get people is to get access and to get people yeah, to open that comes up. Comes across in the movie to me. I wonder. It made me wonder. Um, could share with the audience uh, something that each of you learned about the other over the course of the making of this film. From the point where you started, you had certain yeah. expectations or understandings of each other, yeah. to the point where you are today. Share with us something about the other person that we might not know or that might surprise us or that you learned. I think Joe is, is a softy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's got this, uh, you know, hardcore New York exterior, you know, pessimistic, skeptical, but he's a softy. He loves people. He cares so much. And I love him to death because he's got a heart as big as this room. 
and I didn't know that when I met him initially. I knew he was a good human. I knew he was a good man and a, and a good soul. And he had, I could feel his total integrity from the first time I met him. That's why I wanted to invite him to the event. I just wanted to contribute to somebody that I thought was such a good human being. Um, but I had no idea what a softie is underneath all this stuff. You may disagree with that, but I think he really is. That's, that's <laughs> and it touches my heart. That's kind of you. That's really kind of you to say. That's sweet. Um, what I learned is that when you take press photos standing next to this guy, you got to you got to go on tippy toes. Um, but on a much on a much deeper level, you know, my I was mentioning before. I don't know if you when you you arrived, but I was mentioning that you know, my selfish reason for uh, wanting to make the film, besides wanting to share your mission, which I think is incredible. You know, I had such an amazing experience in 2012, really transformative, that I wanted to see if if it would happen again, if the yeah. same level of incredible interventions that we saw in 2012, that the year I was not filming, yeah. great stories, would, does, will that happen again? Will the feelings that you, your, you and your teachings and the group evoked in me, would I feel that way again? You yeah. know? So I was really you know, interested in that. And now that I was making a film, I was a little nervous that, you know, well, what if I found out the opposite, you know, and having that backstage pass. And, what I've learned about Tony by making the film is that, I mean, this man is so committed and dedicated to this mission of helping people become the best people they can be in their own way. That's why it's called I'm Not Your Guru. He's not, you know, and some, and some of the haters, we talked about the, you know, you know the, the Taylor Swift, the haters are going to hate, you know, some, you know, some of the haters, oh, it's oh, the Tony Robbins, it's just a cult. And I, and I hate that because, you know, a cult, you know, a cult leader provides a very specific prescriptive way to this is how you live you follow my rules this is the cult and they and try to separate you from your family i unify people with the family and i don't tell tony them is the exact opposite he wants you to be that's why he's not your guru because a he's not here to tell you how to be he's here to give you some tools uh to figure out the best way you can be as a human being and how to be more connected uh, to one another which is in this these divisive times uh, are more important than ever. Um, and it, 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 this is in his DNA, his mission. I mean, he's a guy with, uh, I hope I'm not embarrassing you, he's got like 18 companies, some of which have nothing to do with this, you know. Most have nothing to do with this show. You know, this stuff, he does like five billion in sales. I mean, he's, you know, he's a guy who can, you know, can walk into a corporation and do a talk for, you know, a lot of money, uh, you know, and there are a lot easier, this is what I learned in making the film, there's a lot easier way to make money than what he, so this is not about money, I mean, this is, this is six days a week, 12 hours a day, and then, as you see in the film, you know, after a long t day on stage, for literally 12, you know, a rock concert is three hours, this is six times 12 hours, he meets with his staff and tweaks and refines the day. I mean, you, you he, he is a committed, yeah. he's so committed to this mission and that's, you know, that's why I wanted to share it. Tony, you talk about this in the movie being an obsession. Um, it almost comes across like an addiction. I mean, the, 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 the what's driving you through this experience, um, it, it, it seems like you, you, you process it in a way that, I guess, you use the word obsession in the movie, so I'll focus on that. Um, it comes across very clearly yeah. uh, how much you, for lack of a better word, get off on this engagement with people, maybe that you were hung. You should. For those who are listening, you away on the with words. Are, are you a poet or what? 
for those who are listening on the podcast at home, I won't I won't detail the gesture that Tony made with his with his right hand. Those podcast viewers or listeners will be missing out. Come on, you can imagine. No, I, I'm. Uh, uh, is that something I, that, that is that is that obsession something that you realized at an early age, or is it something that you become even more aware of and sort of how, know how to sort of channel and and direct it? over time. Yeah, no, it doesn't control my life. It's uh, Addictions tend to cause you to do things that are inconsistent with what you stand for. Um, a passion is something that causes you to feel a unification with what you're made for. And so it's my passion. Yeah. It's not my addiction. Um, but I use the word obsession because I will not give up. Yeah. That's the obsessive part. Yeah. I, I know there's a way and I will find the way and I've developed I've trained my nervous system like a great athlete, you know, a great athlete, a great fighter, a great CEO, a, you know, you know, a great anything is a person who can bring absolute certainty to the situation because with that absolute certainty, you will find the way. Without it, you will not. Uh, and so I remember years ago, uh, there was a gentleman, most of you probably wouldn't remember so many years ago, but there's a gentleman that was traveling and he was trying to find gold. I'm trying to blank on his name right now, but he's a pretty famous guy and he found a half a billion dollars gold in a, a Spanish galleon, but it took him, if I remember right, I'm gonna bastardize this, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure it was 19 years <laughs> to do this. So if you can imagine 19 years of failing every single year, every single day, having to convince people to give you more money after you've taken money and gotten nothing for it, he's making the whole thing up. He's like, he's just, there was no absolute knowledge. He just found this certainty inside himself, you know, much like as corny as it sounds, a Columbus, right? He didn't have a plot, he just felt certain and then navigated with that certainty somewhere. So I have built that certainty inside of me around one thing. If you stand up, it's done. It's a matter of how it's gonna show up, it's gonna be different. Not everything will be elegant, not everything will be pretty. Um, I don't give a shit if it's pretty. I give a shit does it serve you. And I will find the way, and if one thing doesn't work, I'll do another. I'll be crazy, I'll be weird, I'll be bizarre, I'll be gross, I'll be playful, I'll be funny, I'll be kind, I'll be seem like I might be mean, but and I'm not, and people see that pretty quickly. But I'll use whatever it takes to produce that change. But um, it's a meaningful life. I mean, what is life for? If you're living it only for yourself, it's pretty stale pretty quick. There's only so much money, so much love, so much sex, so much drugs, so much rock and roll, so much anything you think is enjoyable. And you can only hold so much. Where life becomes powerful is when you grow, because that's what makes people happy. I always tell people the one thing, we grow or we die, but if there's one word for happiness, it's progress. Because it's not getting things that make you happy, it's who you become. And if you aren't even where you want to be, but you're making progress on your body, or progress on your relationship, or progress on your business, or progress on your writing, your economics, whatever it is, people feel alive. When people achieve something and then go, is this all there is? That's a pretty ugly place to be. Mm -hmm. So for me, I know my passion, I know what I'm committed to, I've wired myself in that area. But what set me on the journey was the pain. What kept me on the journey was the joy. Right? Pain is what started my journey. I, didn't, I wanted to end the pain for myself, and then when I was good at that, I wanted to end the pain for anyone else, and that's still inside me. I hate to see suffering, and I'll do anything I can to help someone not have to suffer, but I really live for the joy of seeing people reclaim themselves. And I see that in so many different ways in my life. You know, working with a president or an athlete or a child or in a date with destiny or UBW, all the different areas, and it's so rewarding. So it's addictive in that way, it's so rewarding, but it's positive words. You can get addicted to something negative or addicted to something positive, but mm -hmm. 
Again, I, I look at it as addiction. My definition of addiction is something that causes you to be something different than you are, something that pulls away from others and pulls away from the core of your spirit or your soul versus a passion pulls you into it, in my opinion. Well, we see in the film, um, we see the pain, we see the light bulb moments, we see those moments of transformation happening in front of us. Let's take a look at one more clip from the movie, and then I want to take some questions from the audience. Cool. So let's do one more clip, Frank. So that, that wasn't an inter Did you have an intervention clip? I think these are the three we had. Oh, too Sorry. bad. And also the... Because the film is really about the interventions. Yeah, yeah, these, because these are just, this is like, you know, the... Filler. The fill. It's the it's it's the peanut butter between the crackers, you know. Uh, well, the the the, <laughs> the interventions are what um, what should. That's the uh, core of the film, and also the, the for some reason they were missing the sub. You know, those the, the subtitles should be there. So well, but it's a podcast, so people won't know anyway. So. <laughs> let's, um, but let's, there were subtitles. Let's see what uh, folks in the audience want to hear uh, or or know, and so that folks on the podcast can hear your question. Let's wait for the microphone. So if you have a question, raise your hand. I just wanted to know, um, because it's, you mentioned it was an emotional journey for you. you it was, did you and your crew, being in that environment and that energy, like how many times did you cry again and again? Like, did you get emotional where you had to leave the room? I mean, because it seems very intense. Yeah. Great question. It was very intense. And my, my crew had varying degrees of reaction at, at the beginning. And by the end, everyone was locked in and really found it difficult to like all you know people were like filming and then realizing they're like you know part of the you know they had a hard time like you know maintaining you know initially facing out and look <laughs> I they were watching I, and forgetting they're filming and yeah and I uh, look I've worked with the same group of people for a really long time and we've been to some really dark and terrible places death row yeah. you know uh, in crude we were on the you know in a, in a very contested you know uh, border area where the the landscape was just decimated uh, through, you know, oil pollution. I mean, we've, we've, we've covered some tough stories. And so, you know, some of my guys were, you know, really skeptical at the beginning. It's like, oh, what's Joe gotten into us, gotten us into this time? And just one by one, they just, you know, some took a day, some took two, you know, and, but they all just felt like they got a huge, in fact, I shot a scene and then decided not to, you know, in trying to figure out what the film was, at first I wanted to include my journey and then I realized, no, no, this film needs to be a, a concert film, like a concert of human emotion, and to not make it about my story. But as part of that, we filmed a scene when, when I wasn't sure w how we were going to actually put it together. I filmed a scene with my crew, which I never do. I turned the camera on the crew, and they all talked about you know, what they went through. And it's, it's a great... You know, since Netflix doesn't do DVDs, it would have been a great DVD extra. <laughs> uh, which I think is funny that Netflix doesn't do DVDs anymore, when, since that's how it started. But, yeah. um, but uh, it would have been a great DVD extra to see how my crew uh, reacted at the end. Um, so it was, and for me, it just brought back you know, all the emotion that I had the first time. And uh, it was, you know, luckily, um, you know, I'm the boss, so if I want to have an emotional moment, I can step away. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, the, the crew came to my house after the program was over one night, and we just had a, a brief little session where we were thanking them. And, uh, it was really moving to me that night because you, they all described it in such interesting terms. Like, it's like, you know, these people, like, it's like they drank, you know, Jack Daniels and then they just started opening their souls to each other and there was no Jack Daniels. How do you do that shit? You know, <laughs> there was some, there were just so many cool different ways of looking at it, but you saw how they were all moved, even though they were working their tails off. And these guys, you know, you can imagine filming, carrying that stuff around for 12 hour days. 
I mean, they really worked their tail off, but to see them still impacted was really. I really wish good. it was twelve hour days because we we were, we yeah, were the true. first ones there, last ones to go. Plus, you you kept going at the end of <laughs> that's the day. True. They were like six <laughs> like sixteen hour days. Yeah, the sixteen hour days would be more accurate. <laughs> true. Other questions from the audience up here uh, in the second row, and then we'll go to the third row. Hi. Hey, Tony. Um, been your student for the last ten years, so I really appreciate. It. Just wanted to thank you uh, for actually, um, I guess, organizing this and giving me and my wife an opportunity to be in such an intimate um, uh, setting. We actually cut our second year anniversary short just to come out here. Oh my gosh! And see you. Yeah. So we've tried to come out to. Um, did she want to do that, or did you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see if you're going to stay married. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, we've tried to come out to one of your uh, events, but because of a couple of setbacks, we just couldn't. But I'm glad we, we, we got the opportunity to come here and experience this together. I had a question for you. Um, what em is there a certain emotion that took you um, a considerable amount of um, effort to overcome over the course of your, um, you know, your, your adult career? I mean, you've helped so many people transform their lives. But individually, as you know, for yourself personally, was there a certain emotion that took you a while to maybe overcome, or? Like I that? think there've been many, honestly. Um, I don't know where I'd start. I just try to give you a real brief. Um, I think one of those is early in my career. I care so much. I wanted to help everybody. I was so committed. I was so driven. I wouldn't sleep. I would. I mean, I was just. I mean, I guess I still don't do many of those things, but it's not as extreme as it was then. And I also was trying to be perfect because I thought, you know, as a kid, that's what you needed to be in order for people to listen to you. And um, but you know, as I matured as a man, I began to realize there is no perfect. It's all bullshit. And I'd rather just say, I don't know if I don't know, and then figure it out, you know? And, it, and I, it changed my approach to things, and that happened early in my 20s, probably. I think I also, in my 30s, you know, I became more of a, uh, a well-known figure in various countries around the world, and I began to see something I didn't understand, which was, you know, I started out, I was this young kid, everybody wrote about, and he's helping all these people, and all the stories were positive. And I didn't understand something that Madonna clearly understood in her career, which is, if you don't take control and change the story, the media will. Because the old story is boring. I remember I was coaching President Clinton when I was 31, and I was at Camp David with him, and, and he was so stressed out, because he had been, you know, on top of the world, elected, right? And then all of a sudden, if you remember, the Republicans took over, they had the contract for America, some of you old enough to remember this, and they took over both houses of Congress, and all of a sudden he was seen as a completely ineffective president, and he was being thrashed in the media in every way. And I remember I sat down with him and I had this long intervention with him, but part of it was I said to him something I learned by that stage, by the time I was 32, which is, if you do nothing, the story's gonna change. I said, if you do, now I'm not advising you to do nothing, but the, that you're a weak president, that you can't find your ass with both hands, that you can't resolve anything, that you're not falling through, all those things are stories that will get old, and if you do nothing, the media needs another story, so they'll come up with a new one, just to keep people interested. I mean, I'm not being derogatory of the media, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, so what I learned after a period of time was, A, I didn't need to be perfect, um, B, I learned to just trust myself in that area, and then I think C, you know, uh, the media is not designed to educate us, obviously. It's designed to startle you. If they educate you, they'll never get your attention. 
It's like going to startle you. Your child may die by drinking water, film at 11. You know, there's always something you're going to die from, you're going to get killed from. There's, and they live off of that. And it's nothing wrong. It's just like if you walk by a newspaper stand in the old days, and we also buy newspapers, you know, on the stand, you see a thing that says great weather this weekend, you keep walking. If it says big storm coming in those days, you put your 50 cents in. So, you know, the whole frame that if it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So in my, the story of who I was turned into a guru, turned into this man who's controlling the minds of congressmen and senators and billionaires. And, and I hadn't changed an ounce. I hadn't done anything. And so I think I went through a stage of like, oh my God, my mission's going to die because the media is going to kill it. And then I just one day just decided to stop living in that fear. And I said, my gifts will make room for me. If I keep serving people, if I keep delivering beyond what anybody else has done, if I keep adding more value than anybody else, then not even some crazy person trying to take you down the media who doesn't understand this will be able to do it. And that's been my experience. And I've been doing it 39 years, you know, in 100 countries. At this point, you know, just recently I'd had a, uh, a seminar. I do a four-day seminar called Unleash the Power Within. It has a firewalk in it. It's never been about firewalking. It's an hour of the program. But I used to do skydiving, but it's hard to get 10,000 people flying above Dallas in the middle of the night to do this stuff, right? So we use firewalking, and I've done it for 35 years. I've had a million and a half people do it. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in Dallas. We had 7,500 people there. And always when we do this, about a half of 1%, we'll get some hot spots or some blisters. Now, if you're going to come here and you're going to go run the marathon, you're going to probably get some blisters. And it's not going to stop you. It's a badge of courage. And afterwards, you go, look what I did, right? That's what it's like for these people. And no one's forced to walk. There's medical professionals on site. But what was different about this one, this happened five years ago, by the way, in San Jose, identically. A story went around the world. All these people were burned, and people are calling me, all my friends and people around the world. I'm so sorry this happened, and nothing happened. It was just somebody was driving by, saw this the first time in San Jose, and called and said these people are burning. Same thing happened in Dallas. Somebody unfamiliar with the situation, how we normally operate, said, oh my God, people are burning, sent out all these ambulances. Nobody complained, it was there. I mean, it's like two blisters on your feet it was like a real severe experience, you know. Uh, what's his name, Judd uh, Apatow said, he sent a little tweet to me and, and out to everybody else. He goes, sometimes when I walk on fire, it feels like I'm walking on fire. <laughs> you know? You know? <laughs> so it's like, so you know, yeah, you might get a little blister. But the media story was around the world and what happens, one person's story and nobody spends any money anymore. You know, they don't have a team. So all they do is copy the story. And nobody does the investigation. So five years ago, um, Ariana Huffington's a friend of mine. She's been to this event. And so she hired, took one of her staff members and said, I want you to go to the hospital and I want you to do the investigation. Well, no one was hospitalized. They advertised that. It was so bad, Fox News had to turn it around five years ago and apologize and retract, which they almost never do. Um, but now it just happened again. And so would I say to you that I was enthralled by that? No, it pissed me off. I was frustrated, quite frankly, because it's, you know, it's making it sound like it's this... I don't know, like all these people are injured or hurt. It's total bullshit. They said people are hospitalized. Nobody was hospitalized. Um, and so that part's frustrating. But the media has also given me the gift to live in a time when I could get my message around the world because of them. And I'm incredibly grateful. So whatever downside may come at times, it's minute by compared to the upside. So, you know, you go get it corrected. Huffington Post is doing this story. There's one in Inc. Magazine. It corrected all the mistakes. Meanwhile, it's gone around the world multiple times, and people are still like, I'm so sorry this happened. What the fuck? Nothing happened. <laughs> you know, right? So that part can be frustrating. So I think along the stages, the reason I tell you that is at this stage, though, my reality check is it, no one's going to, you know, my brand is here to stay. 
I've done this for 39 years in 100 countries. I have, you know, somebody says things, you know, about this and then, and there's so many people that have done what I've done that someone will step up and say, I've been there, that's bullshit, it's incredible. And it's the world we live in. You know, the web is an interesting place. It's the Wild West. Most of what's on the web is total bullshit. And you gotta work to find the stuff. And we don't teach people how to evaluate truth. We teach kids just jump on the web and get your answers. And so we have a society that has segmented perceptions. I mean, you look at what's happening right now in this country. And you know, you hear Black Lives Matter and you hear all this upset and a lot of white Americans are like, well, that police officer was honest. And many of them have been tried and they really were honest. But you know, if there are, if there are 100 planes go to land and two don't land and crash, no one gives a shit about the 98 that landed. Everybody's gonna talk about the two that didn't. And if you're African American, there have been over the decades so many experiences of injustice that of course there's a sensitivity. I mean, I, what I see happening in our society is we're not entering other people's worlds. We see, you can live your whole life watching Fox News or MSNBC and have a totally different view of the universe, right, between those two, and we don't really step out anymore. So my mission in what you see in these events is people from every walk of life entering another person's life. You know, you see a woman that's 380 pounds and there's this chachi guy that would normally make fun of her and now he's sitting here cheering for this woman and really pulling for her and you can feel every ounce of him cares. How do you create that? That's what I'm fascinated to do. And the microcosm I'm working for is that group of people from 71 countries. But the macrocosm is understanding black lives matter does not mean white lives don't matter. It means there's a group of people who are not being respected. There's a group of people that are angry because they're hurt and they have to be heard and we have to do something about it. And the only good news I see about things like this is we're at a threshold. And threshold is what it takes. So there's so much pain that people finally do something to change. You don't have that pain to change. But most people do. Most people don't change proactively because they're too fearful. But uh, so my view is how do I help people to integrate those lessons so when they go home, they can have that kind of transformation in their home life, not just in, within themselves. And, and really, at the end of the day, the reason I wanted to make that film is, or this film, the film, um, is that you know in 2012, when I went to this event, uh, I, I have never quite witnessed anywhere how quickly boundaries between people, I mean, dissolve away. I mean, Tony creates this environment where people from all walks of life, all socioeconomic strata, different experiences, some people are there for real trauma that they're working through, other people are there because they're achievers and they want to get to the next level and thank God they haven't had that level of trauma. And just very quickly, not only are people there for their own selfish in quotation marks because it's perfectly fine, their own self-interest, but they're there to cheer other people on to, and this, this feeling of love and connection. And I, I've never quite seen anything like that. So I wanted to do something a little different with the documentary form, which is to bring that feeling to a film. You know, um, and I'm not knocking this, and we've talked about documentaries uh, you know, at the beginning here, um, and I'm not knocking it because I've made many of these kinds of films, but the feel bad films. The feel bad films, exactly, um, uh, <laughs> uh, exactly. The, you know, documentary has become synonymous with with the takedown piece, with the investigative. This is the latest social ill, and that's that's important because with the gutting of print journalism and the corporatization of the media, meaning a handful of corporations own all the television networks and, and the blurring of the line between entertainment and reality, certain stories are just not told because for fear of offending advertisers or for fear of offending corporate partners. And so, 
you know, the independent documentarian has stepped into the void over the last 10 years or so to really do some of the most important social issue reporting of the day. So I'm not knocking it. I've made those kinds of films. Those are, those are important films to make. But I wanted to do something a little different with the form, a little different from what I do, which is to kind of take, you know, present my take on what I think are his most important universal ideas and to present them to an audience, not so that you go run out and sign up for his seminar. If that happens, great. I think people will get a lot out of it. But if you spend two hours, the running time of the movie, relating to some of these characters, thinking about the direction of your life, thinking about how you can be more fulfilled and, and, and content and grateful, that's the, probably the biggest word that I took out of his seminar, seminar, gratitude for what I have, as opposed to expectation. Um, and, you know, if you, if you feel more connected to yourself and connected to other people, uh, you know, maybe there would be, now I don't believe this will truly happen because of my film, but if we all, the creative impulse was that if everyone felt a little more satisfied and connected, maybe there would be less social ills for documentarians like me to go run around and make movies about. But don't worry, my next film's on genocide. <laughs> 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 Which is true, but anyway, but I didn't mean to destroy my speech with my, with my joke. But, and, but, uh, but, but that's for but, those who think I messed up his future. You don't have to worry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we're we're almost out of time, but I want to get to two more questions. There's a gentleman here, and then there's a gentleman here. So we'll go to quick question, quick answer, so we can get them in before. Sure. Uh, my name is Oliver. Um, I was actually Tony in your Dallas UPW. Oh, great. Yeah, I was still wearing it. Yes. Um, One of the people that burned to death. <laughs> That's what I've been saying. They were not in the right state. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I just want to say, um, Tony, that I mean, you, the title is I Am Not Your Guru, and you don't tell people what to do or, or how to live their lives. And I am, in fact, a testament to that because what you did for me is just unlock that lock I had in my mind with regards to my preconceived notions, which I have gotten probably from family, society, and how I view myself, I, I would think that because of a, I am a minority, I don't deserve to be in where, where I find myself. Yes. Which is completely incorrect. And I would have all those limiting beliefs that will keep me from taking action and, and meeting amazing people and being in amazing places and doing amazing things. So, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for doing that for me. Oh, and, that's very kind of you. Um, he mentions in the seminar that we have certain beliefs that keep us back and we basically mock those beliefs and we have to do incantations and believe that, that you know, we, we, we are here for, for the greatness of, of ourselves. And Tony, thank you because for, for instance, what brought me here today is because I, I met this completely stranger last Thursday um, and I would not usually reach somebody on the train, right? Because we, we live in, a, in, a, in New York. You, you're a creep if you say hello to a, somebody on the train, right? <laughs> so this gentleman was reading a book that I'm actually reading, and I said, because I went to the seminar and, and I understood things differently now, I have a certain sense of certainty. And I said, oh, you know what, I'm certain, so let me talk to him. And I said to Jeremy, right here, dude, I'm reading that book, and we just, carrying on for 25 minutes about how I went to the seminar and the things that we did and everything. And today, we, I met him five days ago, and he tells me, Oliver, 
there's this Tony Robbins seminar uh, uh, presentation happening. And look how, how life works. Life is telling me that this is the path. This is the energy. It's bringing me back to that energy that's keeping me happy. So, Tony, thank you. Well, thank you for the comment. You awesome. did the work, but thank you for the comment. I appreciate it. You know, you, you bring something up really happy, really interesting and simple. People ask me a lot recently about, you know, how is it that somebody can go kill men, women, and children like they did in San Bernardino or Paris or Orlando or so many places now, right? You know, you look at the terrorist example. And I said, I can't tell you what makes somebody do that, but I can tell you who didn't do it. It wasn't a happy person. It wasn't a fulfilled person. Happy, fulfilled people don't try to kill strangers. They don't try to hurt friends. They don't try to steal anything. And, and we, as a culture, have so made our minds the most important thing when our hearts and our spirit and our souls are the most important thing. And as long as the mind's in control, you'll never be happy. Your brain's two million years old. And that two million year old brain is designed to make you survive. It's not designed to make you happy. And if the happiness is your job, it's always looking for what's wrong. It's always looking for what to fight or what to flight. And I think that once we understand this, then we can start to rewire ourselves neurologically. That's what I really show people how to do is, you know, most people, if you do it enough, you get angry enough, you're wired to be angry. You get angry over little shit, you know, or you get worried all the time. Um, but you can also wire yourself for passion or for love or for certainty or for action. And I think that most of us just have not taken control of that. And here's the problem. The majority of people that are out there, would you say that they are physically fit, strong, and healthy? Yes or no? And the majority of people out there in a passionate relationship with love and passion where they can't wait to be home with the person they're with? Yes or no? Not the majority. Are the majority of people out there financially secure? No. Are the majority of people out there loving their work? No. So that's the fucked up society we live in, <laughs> okay? Okay, but I don't let that get me down because the fact, I'm not overly optimistic, the fact that very few people do, there's a few that do, there's a few people that are fit, there's a few people that feel connected to God regularly, there's a few people that love and have passion, there's a few people that have all the things we're talking about, and I'm interested in the few who do versus the many who talk. And once I figure out what they do, I just share that with other people and show them how to make it real. But we all believe whatever we live in. Beliefs create and beliefs destroy. So whatever you believe, it's having an impact. The problem is most of us aren't even aware of our beliefs. We're aware of the obvious ones. We're not aware of the subtle ones that affect the way you think and feel every moment of your life. And so what Date with Destiny is really about is uncovering what are the beliefs and values that control every decision, every moment you're alive, every feeling, every thought. The fact that you're here is controlled by your beliefs and values. There are many other things you could do, but something brought you here. It's a set of beliefs and values. What you're wearing is your beliefs and values. Where you're sitting in this room is beliefs and values. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. So most of us didn't pick our beliefs and values consciously. And what Date With Destiny is the chance to do that and understand the consequences of it. And then, yes, if you're happier, now you're going to touch other people as well. But to me, it isn't just about me or you. It's about living an extraordinary quality of life where you live in such a beautiful state of being that you don't have to be told what to do. You do what's right automatically. And that's bringing back the human in humanity, as far as I'm concerned. And that's my mission. Hi. You remember we danced last year in July. In we danced? We danced. Where did we dance? I mean it exactly we danced. You put me on stage, 
and that was the fear. Oh, yes, fear. yes, I recognize you now. Oh, yes, I know yeah. what you're talking about now. And since then, actually, my son... Don't be spreading that word that we were dancing yeah. and shit, okay? <laughs> yes, everybody knows. You're going to change my brand. <laughs> <laughs> Open up a whole new market. <laughs> and I want to actually say thank you to everybody. I never heard about Film Society Talks, and I really appreciate uh, you arranged that event. And I really appreciate, Joe, you did that movie, which I saw it uh, a couple of weeks ago on uh, YouTube. Presentation. You did? You saw it on YouTube? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it. No, no, not that. Uh, you were talking about. Oh, oh. You were talking about. Uh, oh, talking about the movie film. Oh, oh, cool. And, uh, yes. <laughs> Netflix so, would be quite disappointed if this was on YouTube. And, and, and I was. Uh, Millions of dollars, and it's on YouTube. <laughs> I was shocked to see Tony will be here in New York two days ago on uh, Facebook. So and. Uh, and I was introduced to your work by my son, who is 31, and he pushed me because I was, I'm Russian, and I'm really? from completely <laughs> different environment, and I never had any thoughts what I have right now, and I'm a real sample of transformational work done by Tony Robbins, and I don't think anybody does what I do because I'm from like old school, military school, and what you saying, emerge. If you want to do something, you have to emerge, you have to dig in. Yeah. Since Chicago, no, it's before Chicago actually. Every, when I start buying all your CDs and everything, incantation. Yes. Every morning, I do hour and a half. Wow. With all your incantation words. Are you serious? Every day and every way I'm getting better and better. <laughs> every day and every way I'm getting smarter and smarter. That's awesome. And I want a big company. And let's put this everybody. Since I start listening, in the morning, sit down with me and listen to Tony Robbins. And people start, and I just, I'm in sales and I, Bought the 10 uh, CD, 10 days CD sale, yes. which it's, I found absolutely phenomenal. It's like amazing. Like most of you just things you do, CD, videos, and uh, actually 25 years I've been in the United States, and I'm educated, and I'm, I was in army in Russia, and I, I'm actually was always in shape, always training, and I, I keep training, and uh, but since I start, came from Chicago, I did. Uh, Usually my push-ups, their routine was two, three hundred push-ups a day. In two months, I did two thousand twenty. That was oh my incredible. god, that's incredible. That's awesome. In one hour, thanks to you, wow. I just push myself. Yeah, that's great. Just listening to you, just doing what I'm doing. Two thousand twenty in two months. That's incredible. And that was just absolutely showing to me the way how the person can push himself to any, any way he wants and achieve anything you want in your life yes and very important i want to say thank you to you to introduce to me attitude of gratitude never yes. thought about that never heard about that doing that daily basis my yes. life completely different everybody who knows me i'm like in my work everybody fears me i came very small very very intimidating everybody was now the, everybody's saying you're a completely different person. Like wow. You cannot even mental diet. I never say F word. I never said without anything without F word. Every second word was F word. <laughs> now it's the 
a brother. Everything, I mean, I'm real sample of everything works. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Every day I'm saying, Tony, thank you very much. Thank you very much again. Thank the you. Film, the film, the uh, film, Tony I Robbins. Did, I did uh, 2,000 spoon ups. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for that. <laughs> I do want to say that you know what human beings can do is amazing. What they will do is usually disappointing, and it's not based on capacity. It's just based on training our minds to respond to us. Most people let their mind run them. If your mind runs you, you can make great strategies, but you're not gonna have a very happy life. Your mind will never help you enjoy an apple. It'll go, is it organic? Did it come from the right place? Right? Only your heart, your soul, your spirit can enjoy life. And I think we have to learn to put our mind back in the place where it's not the one running the show. It's you're the master of your mind, not let your mind be the master of you. And you're an example of that. You've trained yourself now to get yourself to do whatever you want to do. I've trained myself to do that as well. Once that happens, the world opens up because you no longer have excuses, you're no longer looking outside yourself, and you just make it happen. And everybody looks at you and they're mystified and then they think you're lucky or you're a genius or you're full of shit, whatever they do, because they don't want to look at the fact that if my life is not the way I want it, it's not because it can't be that way, it's not because society's that way, it's because I have tolerated within myself limitations. And we all get what we tolerate. And you can change that as fast as you want, and I hope when uh, you see this film, if you do, uh, that it'll inspire you to think about what's next for you, what's the next level for you, because that's the only thing that makes us happy is that growth, and with that growth, we have something to give, and giving is what life's all about. The film is Tony Robbins' I Am Not Your Guru, available on Netflix in many countries and in theaters in this country. Um, as, we, uh, as we give uh, Joe and Tony an, a round of applause, please stay in your seat so they can get off to their next event that they're heading to. Um, but let's thank them for being with us here at the Film Society today. And, and thank you, Eugene. Uh, amazing job. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to the close-up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.